Good morning. You will uh, notice uh, some of the ushers have some uh, notes in their hands. I don't really particularly get a buzz out of, out of uh, passing out paper, but you will notice that these are the PowerPoint presentations minus my last-minute changes and uh, with a side uh, place on the side for notes. And if you are a note-taker, then these will probably be helpful to you. But eventually we're going to want to know how many of you actually use them, and, and so uh, we won't print up more than, than actually is, uh, is profitable. But if it is helpful to you, then uh, we uh, encourage you to feel free. This is the second lesson in the series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And this lesson I've titled for the moment, What Makes the Church So Special? I don't know if you've, uh, if you've seen that television commercial, but it makes me giggle, the one for Edward Jones, where the guy's on the phone and his surgeon is there in his, in his hospital garb at the hospital desk, and he's telling him to insert the knife between the third and the fourth whatever, and the guy says to him, shouldn't you be doing this? And, and that just tickles me in, in the sense that Some people, I think, believe that the church is the sort of thing that you can kind of do it yourself. Uh, Just put the knife wherever you want, uh, whatever, and and that there's sort of a a free-form sort of uh, uh, approach to the church in the the New Testament. And I have to say, I I don't believe that that's really uh, the case. So anyway, I... uh, I believe that we ought to be doing it probably a little bit more God's way. Last week, I tried to underscore the importance of how we do church, and I guess as I thought back on it, it was probably a little more negative than, uh, than, uh, than I wanted to leave alone. And so this week will be on the more positive note. Uh, that is, the focus was on the death of Uzzah related to the transporting of the ark, and the death of, and sickness of the Corinthians for messing up at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, it's not all bad news, and so I'd like to talk a little more this week on the good news. But from last week, we ought to conclude how we worship matters. It really matters to God. And uh, let me just highlight a couple of points. Ignorance is no excuse. Often that ignorance was willful or at least neglectful ignorance. It is not an excuse for failing to do what God has said. Emergencies are no excuse, like an ark looking like it's going to fall over in the cart. And often our emergencies are created by our own failures. We set emergencies up and then we think that we must do something different than the Scripture says. Excitement and enthusiasm are no substitute for obedience. I think that there are some who think that if there is enthusiasm and excitement, it must be right. Now, I'm not against excitement and enthusiasm, and folks, we could probably use a little jab of it, so so we're probably on the short end of that stick, but... Just being enthusiastic and excited doesn't justify doing things wrong. And finally, the fear of God and the love of his word is really foundational for 
everything, but especially in this series for how we do church. Well, let me just, uh, one of the elders suggested that I was not really specific enough on what I meant by doing church or in the title, how do we serve church. What I'm talking about there is really everything that constitutes the nature, the mission, and the practice of the church. It's not just how we conduct ourselves in the meeting of the church on Sunday morning, but it's how we do all of it, how we understand it and how we practice uh, the church. The focus of this lesson, and I I added a point, I think it'll be on the screen because I could fix that, but not on your notes. Uh, The focus of this lesson is threefold. One, what makes the church so special? I I think that there is, I I have to confess, and those of you who know me from years gone by, that the term self-esteem is not one of my favorite expressions. But it seems to me that the church collectively suffers from low self-esteem. They really don't see themselves as valuable as they are in the sight of God. What makes the church so special? I want to focus on that. What challenges face the church and how should we deal with them? And thirdly, why CBC is like it is. One of the things that we want to do is to try and explain why we operate, why things are different here than perhaps in some other places. It is, it is by conviction, we hope, not by tradition or some other thing. It's, it's by conviction that those are the things the Scriptures teach. Now, I'm not in this message going to focus on how we are different as much as why. What is the fundamental difference between us and and some others, fine churches perhaps, but what's the fundamental difference that makes us tick as we do uh, church-wise? Let's talk for a minute about the meaning of the term church. I don't want to linger there, but but, uh, when I use the term church, I suppose most of the time I'm thinking about us as a local church. But just look at the broad brush of the ways in which the term church is used in the scriptures. The church universal, and by that uh, you can, I mean the church since its birth at Pentecost, people dead and alive, everybody who has been uh, baptized into Christ by faith. Uh, If uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. That would be the church universal as I understand it. Believers in general. but Acts 8.3, but Saul was trying to destroy the church. <laughs> Any Christians he could get his hands on, he was going to do it. It wasn't a particular local church. He didn't discriminate. He just tried to get everybody who believed. Believers in a certain geographical location, such as the church, churches in Asia, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Believers in a certain city, the church at Antioch, Acts chapter 13, Verse 1. And the house church, speaking of Priscilla and Aquila, in Romans chapter 16, Paul talks about the church that is in their house. So we know that there were a number of, of house churches, and those would be referred to by the term church. And then I've put an asterisk, I think, by number six for you and for me. The church gathered for worship. And, and I'm thinking of, it, for instance, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. When you come together as a church. Now, I, I, I put the asterisk there because 
when Paul gives specific instructions, let's say, in the context of women and their, their, the role that they play, I don't think it's talking about church in all those generic ways. I think it's talking about the church when it gathers corporately for its meeting, that that is where those specific instructions are most inclined to apply. Now, I'm not saying they don't apply in some sense elsewhere, but primarily there as I understand it. Okay, what makes the church so special? Uh, I've put uh, the first one, and, and you'll notice in the scripture reading, we had Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. I find it fascinating that Matthew, the gospel that is supposedly written to the Jews, is the one gospel that mentions the church uh, and, and not the others. And, and so when you look at that text in Matthew chapter 16 that, that was read, and, and you hear of Peter's great confession... Is it not interesting, is it not noteworthy to to you that immediately after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, in other words, you are the one the Old Testament scriptures foretold, you are Israel's hope, you are the anointed one, in the midst of all of those Old Testament nuances to what Messiah meant, the first thing Jesus did was to talk about his church. He said, what you have said, Peter, if I understand it right, the essence of your confession is the rock on which the church is built, on who Jesus is as Messiah. The first thing, he says, is about his church. And then if you look at, at the next point, uh, it's, the, it's also in that context, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, this church that is going to be the result of Jesus coming as Messiah, of his sacrificial death and resurrection, that this church is going to be the means by which he is going to prevail over his enemy, uh, Satan. And so the gates of hell, the powers of hell will not prevail against it. Those in Matthew, and then the third point as well, Matthew chapter 18 When Jesus is talking about the purity of the church and the responsibility of the church to discipline those members who are wayward for their restoration, it is clear that that is to take place in the context of the church. And so I just note for you, as Jewish as Matthew is, as Jewish as his gospel is, he is the one who points us to the church and sees the church as crucial and critical in these areas. It must therefore be important. D, the death of Christ reconciles sinners to God and unites Jews and Gentiles who believe into one body. That's really Ephesians chapter 2. The first uh, 10 verses talk about sinners being reconciled to God who were dead in their trespasses and sins, but by the work of Christ and by faith in him, Sinners, Jews and Gentiles, are reconciled to God. But verses 11 through the end of the chapter now talk about the reconciliation that takes place between Jews and Gentiles. The hostility is removed, and now there is one new man, one new building, one new body, this church by which Jews and Gentiles are brought together as a worshiping body and as a place where God dwells. 
Uh, e, the church is the culmination of God's eternal plan to display his glory to the celestial spiritual powers. Remember, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 3 that there is this great mystery, not that, uh, that nothing has ever been said about it in the Old Testament, because it was, but because it wasn't understood until the coming of Christ. And Paul says, I, in particular, and other apostles, it is our privilege to make known to you this mystery, this great plan of God, this eternal plan that has now come to its consummation uh, in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the birth of the church. That he has done to display his glory to the celestial powers. I take that to be both fallen and unfallen, and I've, I've, I've put some verses in there for you, Ephesians chapter 3 being the critical text. But when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, he says the women are to do this because of the angels. So angels are up there looking down right now, as I understand it. They're watching. And I'm not sure that all of those angels are unfallen. I know that the ones that are rejoicing over the salvation of a sinner are, are certainly the unfallen ones. But the fallen ones may be looking on as well. Colossians chapter 2. Christ, when he is nailed to the cross, nail, is nailing those decrees. Uh, God is nailing those decrees to the cross which abound us, and it shows his victory. Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are given, and they are the measure of the victory of Christ over the opposing powers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Those things into which the angels are stooping down to look. Celestial powers are interested in what's going on. I think they must have sold a lot of aspirin, uh, angelic aspirin, because if, if I were an angel watching what was going on, I would have really had one huge headache thinking, oh, my goodness, what are those guys doing now? But that was how God was teaching the celestial being is teaching the celestial beings. F, the church is the bastion and bulwark of the truth. He says that the church, and that's a key verse, he says that I'm writing these things to you as to how you ought to behave, how one ought to conduct themselves in the church, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. When you come to Ephesians chapter 4, huge emphasis on the truth, and he says, truthing in love, talks about not speaking in error or deceit, but speaking the truth. The church is the place where the truth resides, or at least it's supposed to, and uh, that is the purpose of God, one of the purposes for, of God for the church. You know, I left this one out, and it was too late to make the change. I don't think I stuck it in the PowerPoint, so put it in wherever you want. The church is the place where spirit is the arena for the exercise of spiritual gifts. When Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, he says gifts are given to the church. And he says in Ephesians chapter 4, gifted men are given to the church. And, and the thought actually occurred to me when I was uh, thinking about the, uh, the previous point where I talked about the, the bulwark and the support of the truth. And you, I'm thinking about evangelism and those things that are taking place. But evangelists, Ephesians 4, were given to the church. And so it seems to me you, you would conclude from that that, that the church was seen as the place from which evangelism would flow. Not that there aren't other ways, but it's the church that evangelizes and 
disciples others. So that is point uh, G in your notes. It's God's means for evangelism and discipleship. H, the church is God's dwelling place in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. The church is where God dwells. That ought to be a mind-boggling truth. When you think of the Old Testament, I think of yellow tape. (laughs) You know, the police barricade tape. Don't get any closer. I mean, here you are at Mount Sinai. You know, the the, the fire is going up on the mountain. and, And God says, don't let those people close. Don't let the animals close. They'll die. The, the, uh, the barrier around the, the, the uh, ark in the Holy of Holies. Men were kept at arm's distance. And now Christ dwells in us individually and he dwells within his church. What an amazing truth. The church is the instrument for healing. James chapter 5, verse 14. If one is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. The church and its relationship with Christ is the model for Christian marriage. I wonder, is it possible that so many Christian marriages are so messed up because the church is messed up? I mean, the the church, the relationship of Christ and his bride is, is the picture that is to be portrayed in marriage. And if our ecclesiology is wrong, then our marriages are wrong. If we're, if we're modeling our marriages after Christ and his church. That's an incredibly important truth. And this is sort of a catch-all, but, but it seems to me that, it's, uh, that, that it maybe summarizes best. The church is the apple of God's eye. God really loves his church. I mean, look at the imagery. A shepherd with its flock. Doesn't that talk about intimacy and love and care, not distance? The groom and the bride. Love, intimacy. Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Acts 20 and and Ephesians 5 being just two of the texts that say that. And and then speaking of the marriage relationship, uh, Paul says Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He loves us and he cares for us and ministers to us intimately. And then I was thinking about the fourth point. Christ keeps a watchful eye on the church in its victories and defeats. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Think about that. In every instance, it begins with, I know. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. And then you see a description in those seven churches of specifically what he knows about each church. And because of that knowledge, then he gives a specific exhortation. And he gives a promise and he gives a warning if that, if that uh, exhortation is ignored. And remember, one of the warnings is, I will remove your lampstand. That is, that is a horrible thought that the church as the light of the gospel could be removed because of the church's neglect for the things of God. What challenges does the church face? And I speak more generally and also specifically. I agonized about putting this first point in, but I think I have to. Judaizing in various forms. It may come in Jewish form. It may come in Gentile, pure, just flat-out Gentile legalism, too. But as I look through the New Testament, I see over and over and over again I would say the predominant problems of people who have come into the church 
are Jewish problems. They are people who may well be believers or at least look like it. Acts chapter 15. Unless these people, these Gentiles, are circumcised, they cannot be saved. And, and Paul has some really strong words to say about that, does he not? In, uh, in 1 Corinthians, we see these false teachers. And then in 2 Corinthians, they begin to be exposed. And Paul calls them uh, 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 false apostles, uh, messengers uh, of Satan. And then he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. So there was a Jewish flavor to that. And here's really what I'm saying. I, I, I looked up this text. I want to come back to it so I don't want to rob my thunder too much for the future. In Luke, where it talks about putting new wine into old wineskins, or I should say about not doing so, it says that people who have tasted the old wine say the old is good enough. They don't want the new. They don't want the new. And, and, and what I'm really saying is anything that has Jewish or non-Jewish flavoring to it that says the older is better. The Old Testament names for Jesus are better than the New Testament names. That makes me nervous. The Old Testament way of worshiping is better than the New. That, that, that does not speak in a way that is consistent with what I understand the New Testament to be. And all I'm saying is, beware. This was a major problem in Paul's day. I don't think it just vaporized. I think it is a possibility for today as well. That is not to diminish the significance or importance or freedom of people to worship perhaps in, in, and observe those holidays or whatever it is, but it's a warning that we do not dare let it come upon the church as though it is better and something that we ought to be doing if we were spiritual enough. And then there's just the plain old garden variety legalism that just says you've got to keep all the rules, and uh, that's the Gentile version. Denominational division. Boy, you know, when you read in the New Testament, you see that there's one church, a church in Corinth and a church in Galatia, and there may be house churches, but you don't have the first such-and-such such church and the second such-and-such such church and this denomination and that. Denominations, I, I want to say, have in, in some instances, they have been necessary. That is, Division has been necessary where people say, I cannot abide by this false teaching. I cannot be a part of this. Martin Luther didn't really want to start Protestantism, I don't think, as much as to reform the Catholic Church. But, but the bottom line was that a, a denomination came out of that. Protestantism came out of that. Um, but but in, in spite of the necessity, there's been a lot of petty division that's gone on and a lot of bad reasons for starting new churches. One of my friends who's now with the Lord used to say to one denomination, your way is to go out and start a church and then split and start another one. That's really kind of a bad way to go about things. And, uh, and then the division that comes about, the competition and whatever that you'll see in point C, Conflict and competition. Have you noticed that sometimes within evangelical circles we spend more time fighting with each other than we do really uh, doing that which is good and that which is right? It just doesn't seem like the healthy thing for the church to be doing. Obsessed over uh, my way versus your way, even though we may sincerely have our differences. And, and I want to say to you, we've made efforts. I think we need to make more efforts but we've made efforts to really unite with, uh, with other people who are not just like us. Church of the Open Door, from a standpoint of ecclesiology, is not just like us, but we join together in prayer. 
there is a group that's going to meet here in our building this Thursday of, of uh, church leaders. And, and their goal is just to pray that God would work in a united way amongst these various churches. Those are good things, and I think we ought to continue to involve ourselves in those. The parachurch phenomena. This is a really interesting thing for me. I think I have to say that, first and foremost, the parachurch came about because of the failure of the church. The parachurch, you know, came about... take Campus Crusade or any other number of evangelistic ventures. It came about because the church often wasn't doing its job. And then there was discipleship, and the church wasn't necessarily doing its job. And even Bible teaching, the church wasn't necessarily doing its job. So I don't think the parachurch came along and said, let's nudge the church aside and, and start something new. I think they were saying the church isn't doing its job and doesn't seem interested in doing so, and so let's do something. The difficulty with that is that that oftentimes you have this this issue where the parachurch really isn't the church, and and so one of the questions that came, for instance, as I understood it, within one of the major evangelistic organizations was, what do you do about baptism when somebody comes to faith? In the early days at Believer's Chapel, there were a lot of people who came to faith who just didn't had no sense of it. We need to be baptized. And, and I don't know, it's possible there may be someone here who was saved in that generation and still hasn't been baptized. In your, when you read the New Testament, it just looks like that's one of the first things that you do. So, so baptism, the Lord's Supper, and what happened in, in one instance at least was there was a small group within that organization that said, we need to, to remember the Lord's Supper, we need to, to, to do baptism, we need to be doing these things, but then they would have become a church. I've also seen parachurch organizations say, well, I know that the the New Testament says this, this, and this, but we're not the church. And so they excuse themselves. And and so you may have a counseling ministry, and uh, and some guy comes in and says, I'm going to divorce my wife and leave my children. And you say, well, for $120 an hour, I can make you feel better about that. Rather than to say, get your body outside that door, I'm not taking your money. I am a part of the church. You can't divorce yourself from the church. I am a part of the church. And the things that apply to the church apply to me, parachurch or not. If I'm a part of the church, then I'm in it. All I'm saying is good things and bad things. But it seems to me that we need to repossess the land. We need to be saying, as a church, we ought not to be allowing things that we are responsible to do to be passed on to somebody else. That's true for parents in terms of their training of their children. It's true all, in all kinds of ways. We ought not to be farming out things that are our responsibility as a church. Okay. E, I think I may have inserted this in the, in the slide. If I didn't, I'm doing it now. Cultural concession or accommodation. One of the things that really troubles me is the way in which there is in the emergent church and in other ways, there is this desire to be so culturally relevant and so culturally non-offensive that we just basically just kind of flop around and, and refuse to draw lines or we, or we dialogue as though it could be your way, it could be mine. And, and that thing is a dangerous animal in my, in my opinion. But it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that alone for 
moving along to uh, sidestepping Scripture, because this is really where it gets to my hot button, at least so far as I'm concerned. And that is, what, I'm trying, what I want you to understand is, why are we as a church doing the things we're doing? We're not doing everything right, but it seems to me we're, we're trying to do what we do because we believe the Scriptures teach it. And, and where we differ with some other folks is they just frankly don't either believe the Bible teaches that or they don't think, if it does, that they need to do it. And, and, and so that becomes a bit of a dividing line. All right, I'm talking about scholarly sabotage. And, and cut away all the fluff. And what it means is this. In a bunch of academic verbiage, what this text clearly says is not what it really means. But if you listen to my academic verbiage long enough, I may confuse you to the point where you actually believe it doesn't say what it says. And, and, and for instance, I, I, somebody pointed me to, a, to a, a, a scholarly discussion of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and you wouldn't believe, for instance, that, that one of the issues that was involved in judgment was the sin of homosexuality. Well, it wasn't. Uh, send send them uh, these men out so that we can know them. They thought that was the greeting committee for the city of Sodom, and we need to get to know these guys better and check out and make sure everything's... Give me a break. You know, and you're saying, that kind of scholarship is just as pathetic. And I, I want to tell you, folks, it's not, it's not all in liberal circles. It's not all out in, in the Netherlands. Sometimes it gets closer to home than we want to say. And I, I'm just saying, we've got to be aware of that. The scriptures speak plainly. And the danger of people coming along and saying, well, if you really knew the Greek word or this or that, then, then you'd understand. What that says to all the rest of us is, you can't read the Bible for yourself. It doesn't mean what it simply says. It means what it says in sophisticated terms. And so 99% of the people just file on out or listen to the rest of us who think we're smarter. Watch out. Scholarly sabotage. I thought about this verse. And, and here's what bothers me. What bothers me in the evangelical circles where this is being done and where rethinking is happening is why is it happening? And I came across this verse in Galatians 6. Paul says, Those who want to make a good showing in external matters are trying to force you to be circumcised. Why are these guys going around telling these Gentiles they need to be circumcised? Here's what he says. They do so only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They don't want to take the heat for holding to the truth. That's what frightens me. It is scholarly sabotage that says, I really don't want to take the heat. Within this culture, when it comes to fem the feminist movement or whatever, I don't want to take the heat for that. So I'm rethinking my position. And I might rethink it somewhere else. Go away. Second, applicational avoidance. People are saying, well, you know, it really does say that. Paul really said that. But, the re but Paul was just a bigot. I mean, Paul was just, you know, he was a bachelor, and, and, and he was just, he was just a, a, a chauvinist. Or, sweeten it up a little bit, that was true for the church at Corinth. But, but it, it, it isn't really true for us. That was then. This is now. I would say, number one, notice when Paul uh, says what he does, he differentiates very carefully between his opinion and Christ's command, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read that. 
And he'll make it clear when he is speaking for Christ and when he is speaking for himself. Let me give you some verses that are uh, up on the screen, I hope. Matthew chapter 28. And, and this is where I'm coming down to my, my own personal, and I believe it's true for the elders as well, conviction about the scriptures and their role for us. In Matthew 28, 20, which is a part of the Great Commission, Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Everything I have commanded you. We ought to begin to get the heebie-jeebies and get goose pimples when we start saying, I know that's a command, but it's not for us. Because this verse makes me take a look differently. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 and 38. If anyone considers himself a prophet or spiritual person, he should acknowledge that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Now, when you team that up with Matthew 28, you've got to say what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. Like it or not, it is Jesus' command. And he said we ought to be teaching people to obey it, not teaching people to avoid it. I'm getting excited. I've got to relax here. All right. Let me take another text. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Here my contention is, friends. My first contention, the scriptures are authoritative, and we better not ignore them. The second is that the scriptures are universal in the sense that you don't have scripture for, for Africa, scripture truth for Asia. You've you got scripture that, that when it's true, it's true wherever you are. Isn't that, isn't that right? I mean, when you say immorality is sin, it's sin here, it's sin anywhere. It's just wrong. Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I encourage you then, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my dear and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways, apostolic practice, in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Don't you dare tell me 1 Corinthians 14 is for Corinth and not elsewhere. He says in chapter 4, it's everywhere. Chapter 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so must he live. I give this sort of direction in all the churches. Chapter 11, verse 16. If anyone intends to quarrel about this, Paul's teaching here about women and their role in the church. We have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. One truth, universal applicability, you don't sidestep in some cultural way. Verse 33. Remember, this is a, it's a little difficult for translators to know whether it goes with verse 33 or verse 34, but he says, for God is not characterized by disorder, but by peace as in all the churches of the saints. And then he goes on to say, let the women keep silent. My point is, every church, every church, not just some churches. Uh, look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, just about money. With regard to the collection for the saints, please follow the directions that I gave to the churches of Galatia. He gives instructions to one church. They apply equally to another. Follow those. Think about Colossians 4, verse 16. He says, have this letter read to the church at Laodicea. <laughs> and then you read the letter that I wrote to them. Exchange letters. What does that say? It says that when he writes an epistle to one church, it applies to the other. That's just simple to me. It's simple. But yet we say sometimes, or some say, well, 
it was for them, but not for us. So, wrapping this up uh, for the moment, let's say a few things. That's why we function the way we do. We function the way we do because we believe the Word of God gives us sufficient guidance for all areas of life, including that of how you conduct church. That's 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I'm writing these things in my absence, but I'm writing to you about how the church, how one should conduct themselves in the church of God. And and, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired, profitable for these things. 2 Peter chapter 1, he has given to us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Over and over again, the scriptures say they are sufficient for what we know. Do they cover everything? No. But they are sufficient for what we need to know with respect to how we do church. And so that's that's really the bedrock, uh, in my opinion, that's the bedrock line between how we do church and how others, even fine churches, is we believe, I'm speaking, I guess, now for myself and I think for the elders as well. I don't have a mouse in my pocket. We believe that the scriptures teach a particular way to do it and that that particular way it doesn't have all kinds of, of, of just mere forms, but it gives us guidance and therefore we ought to try to worship as closely as we can to what we see written in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we ought to approximate that. Now, I think that other people would say, we agree with you. What you're doing looks like what they were doing. They just don't really think that they need to do that. And, and, and here's what I would say about that, for those who want church cafeteria style, for those who, who want to do it differently. Consider the scriptures. Consider what the scriptures themselves say and ask yourself, do I have freedom, the freedom that I think I have? Do I really have that freedom scripturally? I'm, I'm not going to stay awake nights worrying about people who differ uh, with me or with us. Uh, I, I do hope, however, that they will have considered the scriptures. What bothers me is not that other people do it differently. What bothers me is other people who are indifferent to what God's Word says. When you just blow right on by it as though it doesn't really matter, that that makes my blood boil. Other people may study the Scriptures, and if they agonize with those Scriptures and they conclude before God that's the way they do church, that's before them and God. And I don't agonize about them if they're serious with God's Word. I agonize with sloppiness, which sets aside Scripture without excuse. Uh, for those who embrace New Testament teaching regarding the church, I hope that's us. Uh, one, don't be arrogant. Don't be puffed up. Don't think we've got it right. We don't have it all right. Believe me, we don't have it all right. We're trying. And, and we've, we've, we've concluded that the scriptures are our authority and our base. We don't have it all right. We've messed up a lot of things, and we'll, we'll do it again. Beware of arrogance. Uh, secondly, don't trust in forms. It, it, it isn't really just having the right forms or the right labels. You know, we have elders and deacons and Baptist churches have deacons and trustees. You know, it isn't, it isn't really the title. It's the function. And I have to say to you, there are some New Testament churches who have all the right forms 
And they're doing a worse job, in my opinion, than some churches that don't claim it. But in their function, they are actually living out the life of Christ and they are, they are being a light in their neighborhood and whatever. There may be churches that have a, a man who has the title of the pastor, but the reality is he may be a man who's a real team player. And there may be a church that has the word elders, but everybody knows one guy's calling the shots. It, it isn't just about having the right labels and going through the right mechanics. It's, it's having the right heart before God and having the right function. So function is more crucial than form. And in that sense, we have to be careful about judging other churches because only God knows the hearts of those people and how they're trying to be obedient to him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, and we want to thank you that your word is sufficient when it comes to how we're supposed to do church. We don't have it all right, and we would help uh, pray that you would help us to, to see those areas where we're blind and we just don't get it. We want to be a church that's alive and vital. We want to be a church that loves you. We want to be a church that shows love for one another and for those outside the faith. We want to be a church that wins the lost to you and brings them up in their faith as they come into our body become a part with us. Father, we ask that you would change us, but we ask that you would do it through your spirit working through your word and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.